Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. John Epperson. Hello. And Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is John Drews. That's correct. So, John, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Uh, my name is John, and I live in Tennessee, and I've been writing Rails apps for, gosh, almost 15 years. I started before Rails 1.0 got on the ground floor, and I've been doing it ever since. Good deal. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. We ran across your talk where you were talking about how to lose 50 million records in five minutes. And I'm sure some people just crashed their cars hearing that. So <laughs> do you want to give us a quick rundown on uh, what happened and... And then we can talk about what you learned. and Yeah, so my company, the company I work for, we, we make products for real estate agents. The main project that I work on is listing data aggregators. So, you know, every MLS in the country basically exposes an API that we can get listings from. And, and all of that, you know, it's like 200 that we sync data from and we're pulling all of this listing data into... Mongo and then into Elasticsearch. And it's this super confusing process because the data is weird. I go into all of the intricacies about that in my talk. But yeah, basically, at one point, we had one method of doing things. And then we decided to create a new method of doing things, but never really cleaned up all of the old method. And essentially, some YAML files stuck around way longer than they should have and caused unexpected things to happen in the app. And then, you know, months and months went by, and then we tried to upgrade Elasticsearch. And then when it came back up, it had no data in it. <laughs> so that was fun. And then we just had to resort to uh, pulling from the backups and getting those set up and then figuring out what the actual problem was. So it was a couple days of real headaches. But yeah, it all kind of came back to these YAML files being around for our spec, making all the tests pass, which, you know, laziness and not doing the things we should have, not cleaning up the things we should have. Yeah, and so one question around that is with Elasticsearch, typically from my experience in using it, its data has been populated from a persisted source, like the database. So in your case, were you just, uh, the API calls out to the several hundred different MLS services, were you just directly storing it in Elasticsearch so it never actually persisted into your database? That's correct. That's exactly what we're doing, which is kind of, you know, mistake number one is, uh, you know, (laughs) follow the best practices of the system you're using. And Elasticsearch says... Like, don't use Elasticsearch as your primary data source or data store. The story we were telling ourselves was, well, you know, our situation is unique because we have, like, this data isn't actually ours. We're just pulling it from someone else. And the other problem is that we didn't really know where where we could put all of this data because, you know, we're, we're getting 200 different schemas from 200 different sources. And so it's not like we can just create databases for them. It's not like we can, 
you know, now eventually we have moved on to just throwing things in the MongoDB. So now things go from the API to Mongo and then into Elasticsearch, but they didn't before. They would just go straight from the API through our conversion process. So like a typical ETL, right? Where it all happened in one, in one swoop. And so now we've kind of broken it out into multiple steps, which is what we should have done in the beginning. But sometimes you don't know what you know, right? Yeah, not only that, but now you have a reference point to where if the data seems a little bit weird, but you can now go back to see, oh, okay, so no, we got the data like this, you know, these values. It wasn't us. We didn't do anything on our side. Oh, totally. That, that's one of the biggest benefits, actually. We always knew this. There was always situations we would be in where we would need to refetch all of the data because we made a mistake in our translation layer setup. And that was always a real nightmare because we would have to pull it all from these APIs again, which are horribly slow in most cases. And so, you know, by having things in Mongo, it allows us to sort of re-pull everything if we made a mistake and... You know, it's all coming from a local source, so it's way faster. So it's been a game changer for how we operate our business in this respect, at least. To uh, follow up on that, this is not about judgment. I'm just kind of curious how you made your architectural choice. Was Mongo something that you were using before, or was it something that you chose in order to rectify this situation? And, and how did you guys choose to use that versus, for example, like just using like, I don't know, like a JSON store in Postgres or MySQL, whatever you're using? Or right. using Mongo as your primary. Go ahead. So the app actually uses Postgres for like active record stuff and then uses MongoDB only for these records that come from all these sources because it's listings, which are like houses for sale, but then there's also like agent records and um, off like broker records. There's a bunch of different kinds of records. I never really thought that Postgres was a good fit for this kind of stuff, I don't have a great answer for you. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, a non, yeah. you, non-answer is an answer. When we set out to do like the latest version of this system, we actually did try using Kafka because it was we were kind of looking for something that we could subscribe to basically as like a means to ingest this local copy into Elasticsearch. And uh, I just could never, maybe the Ruby stuff was just not ready yet or not stable yet, but I just could never get the Kafka thing. It would work fine to like sync things as they came through, but trying to like start from the beginning of, you know, whatever channel it was or whatever they call it in Kafka, I've forgotten now, but to start from the beginning and kind of replay everything that's happened forever in Mongo, that it's turned out to be super stable, which is kind of the main thing that we were trying to get out of this system. So, yeah, as an added benefit for Mongo, we can sort of query whatever happens to be in there in rare cases where we need to query the raw data. So, and I was actually just doing that yesterday, and it turned out to be, it's kind of slow because we haven't set any indexes or anything like that, but it's not something we do regularly. But having it available is really nice. Awesome. And so what was your first reaction when, or I guess let's start, like how did you discover that the records were gone? Did you get a client support call or was it a self-discovery? 
Yeah. So um, it was, you know, I'm working remotely and everyone's working remotely. So we're all on Slack and we're trying to upgrade Elasticsearch. And uh, one of my employees just messaged me and said, hey, uh, you know, the dashboard is saying that there's only 4 million records. Like, you know, it should say that there's 55 million records. Like, what do you think is happening? And I was like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. We'll just see what it looks like in the morning. And, uh, you know, before get dream. And <laughs> I'm sure it's, I'm sure it'll be fine in the morning. And uh, in the morning, it wasn't any better. So then it was like panic mode. Or not, not panic mode, I guess. It was more just like, okay, now we have to, like I immediately knew like refetching all of this data was not going to happen. We had to like resort to going from the backups to restoring those. And that took several hours. And then, then we had to actually fix the problem because the whole problem we were trying to fix was that Elasticsearch was like getting slow. And the whole reason it was slow, and this is kind of the punchline to my talk, is like I had gone in and like deleted indices directly from Elasticsearch. And then the indices got recreated with like default settings, which is to automatically add fields to the schema whenever there's a new field. And then we had this thing that would add fields that were timestamps. And so just all day, every day, we were adding new fields by the thousands. An Elasticsearch cluster was like trying to sync everything. So it was, it was trying to sync like megabytes of schema configuration back and forth all day. And we're like, why is it slow? But like I said, you don't know what you don't know. We didn't know what to look for. And it's hard when it's like a big system like Elasticsearch I'm not a Java guy. And so it's not like I can just open up, you know, my Java toolbox and get right to the problem. And so, you know, we were kind of guessing that upgrading would help. And, you know, then it was catastrophe. You know, I've kind of been in that position myself where I started looking around like, okay, I have this need and it looks like Sunspot Solar or Elasticsearch or it could be a different situation entirely. That's going to fit my you know, need. It's going to solve this problem. And so I start implementing it. And then I find out that, okay, well, everything is working great. But then a few years later, something breaks down with it. I'm like, crap, I have no idea what I'm doing now. I have no idea how to fix this. I just want my application to work. Why is it not working anymore? And so I think not in your case, because you definitely are dealing with millions and millions of records. But in my situation, I was only dealing with a few thousand. So querying the database in my situation would have been a lot better solution because not only would it be cheaper to host, but it also was going to be easier to configure the infrastructure as well as being a lot easier to troubleshoot if something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to say about uh, keeping things small and keeping things where you know that you're, you're kind of in your wheelhouse, you know, we were out of our depth to, to a certain degree. And that was kind of what caused the, the major catastrophe. And there was like, like I say in the talk, there was in the talk, I tried to kind of make it a general path to be aware of that can lead to catastrophe. One of the main points is like, 
having worked your way into what I called like a poor status quo, you know, it's like when things are bad and everyone just sort of accepts that they are this way or not even bad, but they're like not optimal and everyone just sort of accepts that they are this way and that, you know, it would be too much work to fix it or we don't really know how, or we don't have the skills to fix it or whatever. And so you just kind of leave it be because there's other stuff to do. There's more important things to do. And what can happen is that all of a sudden, like you said, all of a sudden your app isn't working the way you expect it to. But, you know, in our case, instead of the entire ecosystem being made up of things that we understood well, there were some parts of it that we sort of understood, but didn't really to the fullest potential. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your talk was that you kind of describe having these, I call them landmines, right? Hey, we just got this thing in our app that we don't want to touch, right? Because it's it's just dangerous to touch that place. And we're not going to deal with it till later, right? And you just keep them around for forever. That's just what happens for various reasons, right? One, you have higher priorities. Two, one of the things that I think we're always fighting against is this sort of idea of, hey, I don't want to be the dude that's prematurely optimizing, right? That's sort of this counter philosophy that we're also kind of trying to balance here, right? But I thought it really interesting that at the end of the day, especially at the conclusion of your talk, right, you you specifically say, actually, the problem is we left these landmines in and then we did this thing that we thought was completely unrelated and it triggered them, right? Mm -hmm. And then everything blows mm -hmm. up around us. Right. So keep going, keep going. I just, I thought the struggle with the balance was, was interesting. Yeah, I think the term landmine is really good because there's these situations that you can end up with that are potentially catastrophic, but you don't really know where they are until they're, <laughs> until it's too late, right? Every time you decide to write any code, you're making a trade-off between readability and performance and maintainability and all of these things. And, you know, when you work on the same project year after year, you just sort of, you get into a place where you have accepted that things are the way they are. You're not worried about things anymore because nothing's blown up yet. <laughs> so I'm sure it's fine. Like no news is good news. Yeah. So I tried after this experience, I tried to be a little bit more aware of like where things could go wrong. And the first place I have grown to look at those things look for those things is what parts of my app am I sort of uncomfortable with? Because that's usually where things are hiding. <laughs> are you finding that you're following up on these things? Are you, have you shifted your behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Are you now spending a little bit more time trying to clean up these places? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, it can be difficult to make time for stuff like this, especially when there's new things that need to be done. But I think we do. And that, it's not like they're everywhere, right? It's not like you need to spend 70% of your time like finding these landmines. At least they shouldn't. If they are everywhere, then you've got bigger problems. But thankfully for the stuff that I work on, it's not like they're everywhere. It's not like there's you know many parts of the application that I'm afraid of. But I think that you know it, it is important to to sort of dedicate some time to kind of fixing things.
and just making sure that you're happy and comfortable with, you know, the, uh, the more difficult parts of your application. Yeah, I think it's interesting, you know, just that metric of this is the part of the code I'm afraid to touch, right? Mm-hmm. And, and working from there. It's a feel, right? Like, and that's the hard part, I think, about a lot of what we do is there's sort of like a gut instinct that we have to sort of trust. And that's not really measurable. And for an engineering profession, that's a really tough thing to discuss and and measure. And <laughs> it's hard to justify, right? You're just like, hey, uh, I'm trying to make some time here and it's going to take away from my priorities because I have this gut feel that I need to do this thing because something doesn't feel right, right? Like that's hard. One kind of measurable way that I can look for these things is like, there's always like one method that you have that's like, you know, hundreds of lines long. And if you were to need to explain to somebody how that particular thing worked, you'd have to just read it, right? There's no way to like understand it completely because it's just too big. Like that's, you know, I mean, it's code smells, right? That's like the easiest place to look for these things. I think there's the situation in our app too. The main culprit was these timestamps as field names. It's like, you know, that's a bad idea just to begin with. Like we should have had a better data structure for that. But that data structure was created before Elastic, before we even introduced Elasticsearch into the mix, right? And so it's like there's all of these decisions that sort of are like bricks in a wall, right? And they just sort of one on top of the other. So it's good to do code reviews. It's good to like not do things just because this is the way you've always done them. Like it's good to reevaluate, right? If we would have seen, if we would have really taken a hard look at even just that data structure, it's like, well, okay, I know it's going to be, you know, like seven or eight tickets worth of work to change this, you know, timestamp as a field name structure into something better. And it's going to, you know, mean work for five different people, but this is a liability. (laughs) I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know when it'll rear its head, but this is a liability. So just having the, you're right though. I think it is, there's like a gut feel to it also that is harder to measure. I think some of it comes with experience and I'm just curious, you know, for people who don't have that experience, is is there a way to train your gut? Lose 50 million records. See, this is a tutorial video. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> podcast. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it is difficult to kind of manufacture experience because one of the ways I can define experience is working through catastrophes. And, you know, catastrophes come in all shapes and sizes. And um, you have to kind of go through those things and learn what you learn on the other side. And that's why it's good that, you know, we're... There's podcasts, there's conference talks, conferences you can go to. There's hopefully there's senior developers wherever you work and and all of those things. And we should all be trying to, there should not be a stigma about talking about mistakes because that's where, in my opinion, at least, that's where a lot of the gold can come from. DHH in, in one of his talks talked about uh, one of his keynotes talked about like just in time learning. That's typically where all my learning comes from. On um, for these catastrophes, it's like, oh man, there's a big problem. 
then you have to like figure out why and get in there. But it's, it's only when it's kind of game time and you're like forced to figure out a solution as fast as possible. Yeah. And I would also say, talk to your senior developers on the project because chances are they have really screwed up in the past and just talk to them about it, like over lunch or something, just have them share some of their stories, you know, kind of like what we're doing here to see where you can learn from them. Okay. So devil's advocate here. What do you do if you are the senior developer? Well, then look back at all the mistakes that you've made (laughs) and try to learn from them. I know I've made a whole bunch. I was actually preparing a Rails conference talk about the mistakes I made and the damages they've done. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. I definitely appreciate you uh, telling the world about your ales, right? (laughs) But to dig more in, are there any specific things that you guys did do to change this? Like, did you not do code review before and now you're like, we do code review for everything? Or did you, you know... Are there specific things that you're like, oh yeah, because of this, we sort of changed our behavior in this way. I know that you said that you're kind of trying to find some of these landmines. Are you doing a specific thing to try and find them? Like, I don't know, carving out a chunk of time or or are you just kind of being like, well, when we find it, then we, I don't know, pay more attention than we did? It would be uh, really good if I could tell you that that we do all these things and we follow the development methodology to a T now where we didn't before, you know, unfortunately, no, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff is still left to gut reactions. A lot of this stuff is still, you know, it's not like we went through every single line of code with a fine tooth comb. We have actually rebuilt this entire application since this happened. (laughs) So I'd like to say that we at least, and it wasn't because of this. It was be- it was because of a lot of things. There was just there was a lot of shortcomings that the first app had to begin with, and we sort of wanted to begin again, like with the end in mind. And like when I was a junior developer, there was a one of my mentors had told me at one point, like just write the write the code you wish you had, and then make that work, right? And which I found to be like a killer, killer way to approach things. But I've also scaled it up now to like, well, just imagine the the app you wish you had. And by app, I mean, the app I work on is basically just a GraphQL API in front of a bunch of different things. So there is no like UI for it, which is, I guess, easier in some respects. But, you know, it's like, what is the API I wish I could provide? Like, just start with that and then kind of work backwards. 
as opposed to our older system that had this problem, this catastrophe was like, it used to be one thing. And then we like made it a new thing. And then we made these other new changes. And so there was like all this big progression that happened where we were trying to like, you know, just throw coats of paint over the thing instead of just calling a spade a spade and saying, here's the limitations in this thing. And if we want something fundamentally different, we'll have to write something. New. I have one more thing that I definitely wanted to get to asking you. I loved at the end of your talk, conf talk, right? When you were doing question and answer, you brought up the idea of process theater. And I guess the thing that I liked about it, right, is it, it very, it compacts, right? Like this frustration that we all have of like, hey, I'm doing this process and I'm like following all the, uh, the rules of the process, but I'm completely betraying the whole goal, right? That I'm trying to achieve here. You talked multiple times at the end of the talk about this idea of like, well, agile's hard to achieve and, and things like this. I just, I think it's very interesting that there's sort of like this push and pull anyway among all of us, right? Like we often are frustrated by process that we find useless, but at the same time, when there's no process, we're frustrated because there's sort of chaos. And mm -hmm. I just was, I wondered what you had to say about it. I think fundamentally, like I'm a lazy procrastinating type of person and it takes a lot of work for me to like sit down and be productive so for me i'm always like craving more process because there's nothing that feels better than like a bunch of tickets kind of teed up and you can just go over and knock them out of the park because all of the research is done all of the designs were done, all of this, you know, the, the story was written as well as it could be. And the opposite of that is you have, you know, 58 tickets assigned to you and you're not really sure about the priority of them. You're not really sure about what's the most important thing to do. You're kind of hunting for something that you can accomplish. I mean, I literally did this yesterday. <laughs> just sat there and like looked through, you know, the mound of tickets that are assigned to me looking for something that I could accomplish. And so where process theater comes in is, is that thing. It's like, if you're doing standups, but it's kind of like the same thing every day and what you say doesn't really affect other people or what they're saying, like you don't really care about. And if you're doing sprint plannings, but it's sort of like, you're not really like too involved in making sure that every ticket is understood. And there's a lot of ways we can like convince ourselves that we are following a practice when we're just sort of not really doing anything. We're just sort of floating through. And I think that that can contribute to, you know, poor decision-making when you're writing code too, because it's like, what am I even doing? No one even cares about this. You know, I'm going to write this piece of code and it's like, I don't even know why I'm writing it. You know, there's all kinds of things. I think everyone deals with that. So, you know, I'm just another person. All right. Well, I'm not quite sure where to go from here. Is there any other lesson or anything else you wanted to dive into with this? I don't know. I mean, I, if there's any other questions you guys have for me or... Yeah, I don't think I have anything. Dave? No, no, I think it's been pretty interesting. Yep. 
Oh, I was going to say, so clearly the big takeaway that I got from all of this was if you have a big mess up, you should refactor and remake your whole app. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't think that was your point, but that's what you ended up doing. And I thought it was ironic almost. Maybe one of the takeaways is like sometimes rewriting stuff is the answer. You know, it's not always the answer. And I think it's sometimes it's like the path of least resistance almost. It's like tempting to want to rewrite the thing that is so big that you don't even know where to start fixing it. But there are some cases where your app fundamentally does not want to do a certain type of thing. And trying to make it do that thing is going to cause more problems than solve than it solves and uh, will make it, you know, all that more difficult to maintain. And so that's why, you know, you're supposed to begin with the end in mind. And when the end is different, when the end is, if you built an app to be a blog and then it needed to be a shopping cart, it's like, yeah, sure, you could add a shopping cart to the blog. but you wouldn't like rewrite all of the blog parts of it to be a shopping cart, right? So even in the same app, you're, you're still just writing something new. And so sometimes it makes sense to do that on the, on the app scale also. But you should, have a good, you should have a good reason for doing it, not just because it's easier. Yeah, you know, just as far as rewriting an app, I think we've all kind of been in this position before where we first reached to this app is beyond salvageable. We have to rewrite it if we want to continue supporting this product. You know, I know I've been there in the past. And if it's an application that you've written yourself, I think the main issue with suggesting a rewrite is unless if there has been something that has changed within you, then you're just going to repeat the same mistakes. But if you're saying that you're in a completely different position in life right now that you have learned so much where you would avoid doing X, Y, and Z this time around, then, you know, either a refactor or a rewrite, depending on how big of a mistake it is or how big of a thing it is that you've learned from could be warranted. But if you haven't changed, if you're just feeling bored with this app and just want to rewrite it for one reason or another without them being like really sound reasons, then you're just doomed to make the same mistakes over. Yep. My big takeaway was never, ever, ever upgrade your infrastructure. (laughs) It's dangerous. It's a dangerous practice. Just keep everything the way it is forever. That's right. And then you can get (laughs) hacked like Equifax. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right, good deal. John, if people want to find you on the internet somewhere, where do they go? So I'm a bit of a hermit. I have neglected to be on any social media for the last few years for my own sanity, but I'm on GitHub, github.com slash John Drews. And there's probably a way that if you're screaming to get at me, you can do it there. Also, the the company I work for is hiring. So if you go to uh, wrstudios.com slash jobs, there is a job opening for a Rails developer. We'd love to hear from you guys there. And that's it. Yeah. Awesome. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. 
And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Sure. So my first pick is some organizing clips for cables. So I've recently kind of gotten on this kick of organizing my desk and my area. And one of the last steps to conquer has been organizing the cables. Or, you know, I don't know, if you have ever had a computer, then, you know, cable management can be a pain. So I'm tired of like putting up my foot and accidentally like unplugging something because my foot got caught on the cable. So I ordered this 50 pack of Amazon or these cable clips. They're sticky back and they just clip a bunch of bunch of cables together. So I'd say that's one of my top picks. And the second pick is not a power tool, but it is a hand tool. And it is a DeWalt saw. It's a bendable saw. So this thing is able to, the blade will actually bend as you're sewing something. So if you have a piece of trim that's in a funky position, you just can't quite reach it with a normal kind of saw. This saw will just kind of bend in place and then you're able to saw it off. So it's really cool. Trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. So you're going to have to put up a link so I can be envious. (laughs) <laughs> it's like a super cheap tool, you know, well, super cheap in, in comparison to power tools. It's really cheap. Yeah. All right, John, the regular John that's on every week. Oh, man. So I have two picks. My first pick is is actually a gem that you may know about, but I just discovered. It's called Discard. So I've used other gems in the past for handling soft deletion kind of stuff. And I always complain. I even went out with a buddy a long time ago for beers. And I think that's the only thing we talked about that night because we were just so frustrated with like choices around soft deletion and default scopes and things like that that just always seemed to come with it. Anyway, I wasn't looking for a soft deletion gem. I just picked up a, a, a new app and I was digging through the gem file and kind of looking through stuff. And this... This particular gem does everything that I want in a soft deletion gem. It gives me soft deletion, and it doesn't give me all the bad stuff that I always feel like comes. Uh, it gives me some handy tools. So I just figured I would share it with everybody else who's angry about soft deletion and how things don't work the way they want to. So check out this guy. See if you like it. I feel like it's awesome. And then for my second pick, I have a Glenguan cast strength. So The theme for like the past two weeks has kind of been that I, for whatever reason, seem to be sort of kind of obsessed with this Avalor Abinad or whatever, which is kind of a cast strength idea. If you're into like rye whiskeys or whatever, that's uh, a similar, this is a scotch, but it has a similar flavor profile. I went to my local liquor store and a guy was recommending to me something that tasted a lot like Avalor. And he was like, get this Glenguan cast strength. It tastes nothing like Avalor Avenade. It is also delicious and it's awesome. And so definitely picking that. It's different. It's cast strength. It has a flavor profile, but it's it's a completely, like the notes are all completely different. I don't know. 
I enjoy it. It has a sweeter profile. So if you're into rye whiskeys, it's probably closer to a whiskey than it is to a scotch taste to you. So that's my second pick. Nice. Uh, yeah, I went and looked at uh, Dave's saw. I have one just like it, except the, the handle doesn't snap around like that. So <laughs> that's handy. And it's a pull saw. I don't know if people are super familiar with hand tools, but a pull saw, my father-in-law called it like a Japanese something or other saw. Because most saws, they cut when you push it forward. And in this case, this saw, it cuts. So the, the teeth on the saw are set so that it cuts when you pull it backward. And it gives you better control if you're trying to do precision cuts. And so, anyway, I love me some tools. Yep. I couldn't remember the name of it until I found the link. I just know how to use tools incorrectly and cut myself. That usually happens once <laughs> or twice. Yeah. I'm going to be cleaning up my garage this weekend. And my pick is essentially, they have these overhead ceiling storage systems that you can get for your garage. And I don't remember which ones I got. I got them off of Amazon. I think it was one of the flex mounts ones. So I'll put a link to something like it in the the chat so you can see it. Because I ordered them a long time ago and just never got around to putting them in. Yeah, we have a lot of ceiling space in the garage, you know, because they're like 10 foot or 12 foot ceilings or something. You know, they're, they're high ceilings in the garage. And so we figured we could store a whole bunch of stuff up there. So anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to putting them in. And so, yeah, the garage ceiling storage. Till they come crashing down on your car. <laughs> my, my wife won't let me put it above the car. So she's worried it's going to come down too low and she won't be able to walk around the car and walk upright around the car. So, but yeah, you just, you tie them into the, the joists in the ceiling. So they shouldn't come down unless you're install them wrong. So yeah. And the other thing is, is you can also get like hooks and stuff for them. So you can hang bikes and things like that from them. Because we have some hooks that we've, you know, screwed into the ceiling. And the issue with those is that, you know, I have to be the one to pull them down because my kids can't reach them. And so I'm kind of liking the idea of putting a few of these in the garage and then setting everything up that way. So I'm going to pick the, the overhead ceiling for your storage in your garage. John, our guest, John, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got two. The first one is a... Uh a low-profile mechanical keyboard. I'm recently enthralled with the idea of a mechanical keyboard, but I really do like the Apple layout. And so this one is called the Keychron K1. And Keychron makes several different styles of mechanical keyboards that are all kind of designed to be Apple first. So the command that has an actual command key that's in the right place kind of out of the box, which is nice. And uh, comes with several different switch options. And like I said, several different styles. So I've been using it for a couple of weeks now and I really like it. It's got LEDs and all kinds of gamer types things, but I enjoy it anyway. And then the uh, second pick I have is, it's not necessarily a, a link or anything, but it's the idea of bullet journaling. So a bullet journal is kind of a, a methodology for how to track really kind of anything, but mainly tasks and your personal calendar, but it's all done 
in just like a regular notebook with a pencil. And um, I've always sort of been trying to figure out how to do a personal to-do list because it seems kind of redundant from like Jira or whatever you have tickets in. But I'm finding that there's a lot of stuff that I'm working on or doing for work and especially for personal things, but for work that really isn't captured in tickets. And it helps me kind of what I was saying before, I'm like kind of a naturally lazy procrastinating type person kind of helps me kind of get some momentum going and feel like I'm productive and that can really help. So bullet journaling, you can just search YouTube for bullet journal. There's a million videos. So yeah, those are my picks. Nice. All right. Well, thank you for coming, John. This has been a fun conversation. And yeah, I always love kind of digging into, okay, what what did we learn? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, you know, the RubyConf talk was, was a blast. And, um, you know, I'm going to be submitting more talks for more stuff going forward. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being willing to like tell people your story, right? As we were talking about at the beginning, I think, I think more people should be willing to do that. Well, it's what I can do. <laughs> when you've made as many mistakes as I have, it's easy to talk about them, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Sounds good. Well, we'll have another Ruby Rogues next week. And in the meantime, Max out. Talk to y'all later. Later. Bye. Right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.